Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending July 2nd. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you are not going to hear me for the first three days of the week. I was off sick. And uh, Simon Winkler and Jay Smallfielden, so thanks guys, you'll hear them throughout. You will also uh, hear us having a chat about Bobby's weird allergic reactions to things like... Well, I don't want to spoil it, actually. Yes. I'm going to tell you what she's allergic <laughs> to, but it's horrible and I feel very bad for her. Also, we were joined by Josh Staley, a magician, to talk about uh, his magic show for Melbourne Magic Festival. We have a chat to Ricky Lee Erickson for the last time. Uh, she was on Feature Creatures and she's telling us what she's up to over the next five years. Uh, in the media segment, we also spoke about the future of the Nicholson building. And Michael Harden, our food interluder, walked us through the joys of Amaro. Plus, historian Will Westerman chatted to us about his new book, Merger, the Fitzroy Lines and the Tragedy of 1996. Triple R. You know on medical forms how you have to fill out um, if you're allergic to anything? Yes. Um, there's two things that I'm allergic to, uh, morphine and ibuprofen. Oh, my God, you poor thing. Right? So, and, and, of course, I didn't know about these things until... I had an allergic reaction. Uh, so morphine, uh, to start with, I have had a knee reconstruction and every time I was in pain, they said just to press the button to get morphine. I remember that button. Yeah, um, and, and I pressed the button and then within 30 seconds I would vomit. Um, oh. And I, I, I had a pan thing there. So, so I did it a couple of times and then the nurse came in and then um, she realised, she's like, is it happening every time you're pressing the button? I said, yeah. And she said, oh, you must be allergic to morphine. I said, right. She's like, yeah, so just don't press the button. I said, well, well what do I do for the pain? <laughs> and she said, we'll give you some more uh, Panadine Fort kind of a thing. Uh, and I was just like... So sorry. Right? I so they couldn't swap it over for something? There was No, there was nothing else. And Pethidine? I don't know. I don't even know. I don't know. Is... I don't know. It might be the same thing <laughs> oh for all I know. It's a pharmacist, I think. But I remember, um, and that was, I've had two knee reconstruct. I've actually had a couple of, yeah, surgeries. And uh, so the next time I went in, they're like, are you allergic to anything? I was just like, morphine. And I remember the nurse going, oh, no. Well, we'll, we'll have to give you some pain for it. But, like, morphine is just, like, the best pain relief that you could get. And it's just like, how annoying. What about if you had something worse than an operation, like something where you really needed pain relief. Like, there's got to be something they can give you. Yeah, well, that's... I just give you panadine fort. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's some stronger pill or or, or what, but, yeah, there, there was... I'm impressed that the button works. I thought it was sometimes <laughs> like a pedestrian crossing. Oh, Where fake. it's just a... Yeah, fake. A That'll placebo thing button. Yeah. But if you were chucking as soon as you pressed it, yeah, well, I'm like... Something yeah, is coming on. in. It's pretty instant, because I had that... For a knee reconstruction too, and I oh, used to, yeah. people used to come and visit. It was when I was very young when I had them done, yeah. and I'd just say push the button, you know, when you need it. But I didn't like pushing it because it made me feel a bit sick. But I, when people would come and visit, and I was sicker than I'd push the button because it would <laughs> send me to sleep. <laughs> Go, bye guys. Oh. <laughs> Beep. Oh, um, and so, so ibuprofen is in. Uh, <laughs> Neurofit? Do you guys? Yeah, is it- I, I mean, I don't want to talk, but like I use it because again, yeah. like injuries and stuff, and yeah, it's it's the go-to is the anti-inflammatory. Yeah, exactly, and like period pain. I know my partner and so many people use it Neurofit yeah. all the time, and this was another one. So I didn't realise that I was allergic uh, until I was overseas, and I was living in Samoa at the time, and I had been to the dentist, which was terrifying in itself. Um, but then he said to go and get some anti-inflammatories, and he gave me a script. So I went to actually, I don't think he'd give me a script. You could just buy them over the counter in 
time or anyway I went and bought them um, and it was um, it was not Nurofen but it was exactly like Nurofen just another brand kind of a thing yeah um, and I went home just to put I guess for the swelling to go down anti-inflam uh, and I had one and then um, it, I felt like my jaw was getting more swollen so I had another oh. one Stop it, this is a nightmare. Yeah, and then I went to the bathroom and I had a look at my face and it was it was like a, a movie. My like you you know when your face is swollen, like my forehead was swollen. How on earth does your forehead get swollen? And like the your nose, how you can feel your cheeks from your nose, it was just like one thing. So I, I just it was oh, Bobby, I don't <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, um, it's so like I, a horror movie. Did you freak out? Well, I I did at first. I didn't. When I went first in, I noticed that my <laughs> jaw was bigger, but I just thought it was my jaw. I was like, God, I need some more of these anti-inflammatories. So I took another one. Oh, um, Jesus. But yeah, then when my face blew up, I messaged a friend of mine who was uh, a nurse and she was working in the hospital um, while she was in Samoa. But um, I, I sent her a message. I'm like, Can you please come over? I think I've had a reaction. My face is really swollen, and, and I've had these anti-inflammatories. <laughs> anyway, she was wonderful because she opened the door at like two in the morning and she saw my face she goes yep that's okay so we'll just take you to the doctor to the hospital and I went to the hospital and I had to get um and by this stage I couldn't actually the doctor was asking me questions and I'm like I can't actually talk like because everything was swelling up um so she was talking for me it was and then she just goes so she's having an anaphylaxis reaction to this can you please uh inject a needle uh and, yeah, and, and take it all down. So then I had to go in uh, and then they put a needle up my bum. Oh, in my bum. No, anyway. <laughs> in your ass. <laughs> Apparently it's more effective. Is anyway, that adrenaline? Um, I, I don't know right, what it was, right. but it did, um, it helped. And then I could, because my throat was swelling up and everything. Like it was pretty, it was pretty terrifying. If I didn't have her there. Oh God, you had a nurse friend to call. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it took about five days for my face to get back to normal. But... So I had to have, obviously, a couple of days off work. And people would see me, like, if friends come over and I'm like, oh, well, I can't go out. Like, I'm just kind of staying in. And they'd look at me and they, they just couldn't pick what it was because my face was still swollen, but it wasn't, it wasn't blown up. But it was just taking a while to go down. And just they're looking at me. My neighbour goes to me, he goes, have you had a haircut? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've had an allergic reaction. So uh, did, did it – and there's no – we worried that it'd go down, but it's it like when people lose a lot of weight and there's like excess skin. <laughs> that doesn't happen, does it? Oh, I don't think to your face. But I if don't... your cheeks blew up to the extent where your nose was no longer protruding, yeah. I thought, to be honest, I thought my um, my forehead. I thought that was going to be saggy because it's like, how on earth do you get swollen in your forehead? But it was it was. Had you never taken ibuprofen before? Never. You'd never, until that point in your life, you'd never take, no, you'd never been hungover and taken. Oh, I think I'd taken Panadol, but I'd never really taken um, Nurofen. I, but also, I mean, I may have as well, because I remember um, coming to the doctor back here in Australia, and then I said, and I asked them, I was like, I'm not sure if I've had it before or not. And they said, you may have. Sometimes your body just changes, and then you become allergic to it later in life. So you may have had it when mm. you were younger, um, and this is just affecting you now. I was like, so what What can I do? And especially when you have knee reconstructions as well, just for the swelling and stuff. Yeah. And um, they're just like, no, so you can't have morphine, you can't have... Um, I'd be probably... I can't believe you're allergic to everything that's good about going to hospital. Oh, no. I would be allergic to aeroplane jelly. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Josh Staley. 
is a multi-award winning magician, self-described conjurer and creator of impossible things and veteran now of the Melbourne Magic Festival, whose new show, Moments in Time, is part of this year's host of offerings currently underway. And to tell us about it, the performer, producer and illusionist joins us now. Josh, welcome to Breakfast. Good morning. Good morning to you. Our pleasure. Moments in Time. Uh, how, does, how does this show differ to the ones that you've done previously? So this show is a much more personal show than I've ever done before. So moments is moments in time is about the moments in my life that got me to where I will be that night on stage. So we talk about my very first magic show, growing up, uh, going to magic shops, um, tricks that really impacted me, all the kind of things like that. And the goal is to try and not only share with the audience really important moments for myself, but create a moment for the audience that will have a similar impact on them. Mm. Do you ever plagiarise yourself from previous shows? <laughs> um, it's a funny word, plagiarising myself, because uh, I think magic is sort of always evolving. So there's never exactly the same trick or, or routine in a show because I'm always trying to develop and improve it because it's kind of like an endless quest to you know, make it better. Mm. Um, but certainly there's routines that pop up over and over again just because either I love them or the audience love them. Let's talk about some of your awards, can we? Yes, of course. World's longest, ma- world's longest magic show. Yeah, uh, so that was a, um, a crazy year we did a few years ago, um, and we set the Guinness World Record for the world's longest magic show. So for 85 hours, there was a magician performing continuously, um, and the rules were we weren't allowed to repeat a trick within a 24-hour period. So we had to have someone keeping score um, of exactly what we were doing. And if someone repeated it, they had to yell, like, stop, don't do that. It's going to, you know, break the rule. Yeah. Um, And then we also had to have an audience member watching at all times as well. (laughs) Um, So it was a a very wild uh, experience, especially, you know, 4 a.m. doing card tricks for people. No, that that record's safe, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Well, funnily enough, we actually beat our own record um, from a few years ago. So I'm not sure anyone else is going to try and beat it. We might beat our own record again. Okay. How many magicians are you talking in this 85 hours? Um. So there was, uh, I think maybe between 35 and 40 who did it overall, yep. but there was maybe three or four magicians who had like 75 to 80% of the entire bulk. So I oh. ended up doing like uh, 10 to 15 and then there were a few other people who did the same. And then there were a few people, most people I should say, who did like five minutes here, five minutes there, because we were really desperate to get anyone possible um, so we could sleep for like 10 minutes. <laughs> so yeah. you had... You know, you had magicians' children coming up to do a trick. Um, there was a dog at one point who did a magic <laughs> trick. Um, so, you know, it was like anyone who would like to be a participant can. Um, but there was only really like three or four people driving it properly. Wow. You're uh, renowned for your sleight of hand. What, what's the pandemic been like for you? What, what's sleight of hand like over Zoom? Yeah, not great, um, if I'm being <laughs> honest. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, that, I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration because I've been able to put on virtual magic shows. Mm. Um, so hopping on Zoom and doing um, a version of Moments in Time, it was called Moments Online. Yeah. Um, oh, I could yeah. still uh, do shows and share the mag- show magic with people, um, but it's a very different format. It's really difficult to do sleight of hand magic. You know, you kind of go more into the realm of like interactive stuff, which is a whole different world yeah. of getting, you know, you over the screen to do magic in your own home. Um, but I'm really excited to now be able to, you know, bring back the stuff I really love in real life and do a proper close-up sleight-of-hand magic show mm. at the Mole Magic Festival. And I think everyone feels the same way because the arts and especially magic has really suffered um, mm. during COVID because magic, you know, is the probably the most interactive uh, art form 
uh, in that kind of arena. So not being able to do stuff for people was really difficult. Um, so it's great to actually be back in real life doing stuff. What are audience numbers allowed? Like, do you cap it yourself? Like, is it without cameras? Is it or maybe you have cameras? Is there an optimum number of people to enjoy your magic? Yeah, so it depends on the venue. Um, at the Melbourne Magic Festival, we're hosting an entire range of venues from really big stages with um, 200 plus people all the way down to a smaller room of only 40. And it kind of depends on what the magician's doing. Um, for me, I think 40 is a real sweet spot for close up magic with, with sleight of hand because um, there's, you don't need a camera for people to be able to see. Everyone can get a really good close view. And everyone can kind of be directly involved. And I think that's the funnest part of doing a close-up show Yeah, is that the entire audience is directly involved. And it's what makes it fun for me because I never quite know what they're going to do and how they're going to react. And I have to keep on my feet and, you know, flow, flow with the punches. Mm. You're, are you still a spring chicken or, you know, you, you've won what <laughs> you're the Australian junior champion of magic. Are you regarded that way now or have you outgrown that? I'm 24 now, um, so you know you can decide if I'm a spring chicken or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm getting older every day, though. So when it, you know I'm on Saturday, I'm going to be hosting the Junior Championships of Magic, and that makes me cool. feel very old because <laughs> I've gone from competitor to host. Um, and I guess the next stop is judge. But until I'm a judge, I can feel at least a little bit young. Yeah. How old were you when you first started performing? Magic. Uh, so I, I probably started doing um, like serious performance at around 16. Okay. Um, but I had been into it since I was uh, maybe like 12, like pretty, you know, pretty hardcore practicing. And um, before that, just as a kind of like a fun hobby, like I think most kids are. I think almost everyone probably goes through a, a little part of a magic phase, especially um, when there's like a famous magician on TV, which there probably isn't at the moment. But like when I was growing up, there was Chris Angel, um, mm. who was on TV all the time. So that was my person who uh, like made me interested in magic as a really little kid. Before that was David Blaine, David Copperfield. Um, but then I kind of got more into it at like 12. Do you ever get hired for parties to like wander around and mingle? And <laughs> I was thinking that. Yeah, trick people? <laughs> yeah, I, I do actually. Um, so I do a lot of private parties for businesses and, and corporates and things like that. Um, and it's, it's one of the funnest ways to do magic because you get to do magic instead of 40 people for only like five people. So you can really like pr- closely interact with people. But that's one of the things that really did impact us during COVID because certainly that was out of the equation. Yeah. Um, so it's great to be able to finally like see those events trickling back in. Not to dwell on the negative, but can you describe uh, the least optimum audience member? <laughs> um, I don't think there is a least optimum audience member, to be honest, because uh, the skill of being a really good magician is being able to deal with any spectator. So performing for someone who maybe isn't that interested in seeing magic can be a really great challenge. Um, and unfortunately, usually someone who doesn't want to see magic is because they've had a bad experience with a magician before. Right. So, you know, maybe they've got on stage and the magician's made a joke and embarrassed them or something like that. And I think that's really a sign of the past. I think in sort of maybe like the 80s and 90s, it was kind of popular and, and fun to make fun of the audience. Um, and that can hurt, uh, you know, hurt someone else who's a new magician coming to see them because they go, oh, I don't want to see magic because the magician's bad. Yeah. But trying to have a good experience with them and, and change their opinion of magicians. So now the next time they see them, they're like, oh, I love magic is a really fun mm. opportunity to try and convert that person. What about someone who becomes fixated on debunking you? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's super common, actually. I think there's, uh, you know, half the audience love just watching it. Like, oh, you know, I, I don't want to know how it's done. And then the other half are desperate to find out how it's done. And that's totally <laughs> fine. 
you know, most magicians are that kind of person. We, a lot of people got into magic because they want to know how the trick's done. Um, but it's, you know, it's funny because once you find out how the trick's done, it's usually disappointing. You, you know, the method is never, is never amazing or exciting, generally speaking. So I think those people are usually disappointed, but you know, it's, it's still the fun challenge of letting them set the regulation. So, you know, if they want to shuffle the card, you have to let them shuffle the card. If they want to change their selection, they have to change their selection. And that's what makes sleight of hand fun is trying to keep up with these, you know, crazy requests and make it as impossible as they want. So when the magic happens, they're satisfied. Mm. What is, give, give us a couple of, uh, inside magic acronyms or something. Is ACAN one of them? <laughs> ACAN is one of them. You have been studying, clearly. Uh, so ACAN <laughs> stands for any card at any number. Um, and it was a trick I became quite famous for during uh, the Zoom period of my life, which is wild that I even can say that. Um, and basically, it's a really classic magic trick that's kind of thought of like as the holy grail um, for magicians. So uh, you have a deck of cards in front of you or a spectator holding onto it, and you, don't have, you can't touch it. That's like the rule. Um, and you get someone to name any card. And then someone else names any number, and then you deal through the cards up to that number. So number 25 is has to be that card, and that's how the trick goes. So it's a very difficult magic trick, and I, uh, I became quite uh, popular for doing it during uh, on Zoom. Yeah, right. Goodness. And, and then do, do you ever retire a trick, or you just have it forever? Um, yeah, I mean, I think retiring tricks is really difficult because you put so much effort into it, and you put all your time practicing and developing it. And, you know, it's like your baby and eventually you have to, you know, retire your baby. Um, but, you know, I have to keep my repertoire ever changing because, you know, audiences come back and see me all the time. There's people who've been coming to see my shows for 10 years, which does not make me feel like a spring chicken. <laughs> so, you know, you can't have them seeing the same thing every year. So, yeah, it's continuously changing. Um, sometimes it's a method that changes. So I retire a way of doing the trick and bring in a new better way and other times it's the entire trick uh, it just kind of depends i guess on on what the trick is how it works how old it is all that kind of stuff all right well the show is moments in time it's uh, it's part of the melbourne magic festival which is on now and josh josh's show is 6th of july to the 10th of july uh, 8 p.m the close-up gallery swanson street in melbourne for tickets and more information on all of that go to melbournemagicfestival.com is that everything josh that is everything. Uh, good on you, and um, thanks for. I, I yes, I really. Have you ever stolen someone's wallet or anything? <laughs> I haven't. Uh, no, that that is probably one of those things we talked about before that give uh, magicians a bad name. Yeah, is, right. is stealing wallet and not, and not giving it back. Yes, you use your powers for good. Good on you. Thanks, Josh. Use my thanks, powers Josh. for good. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good morning. Bye. You too. Melbourne's own Triple R. For the final time, we're joined for Feature Creatures on Breakfasts by the magnificent marine biologist, Ricky Lee Erickson. Morning, Ricky Lee. You're leaving us. Good morning. I know. I'm so sad. To, this is my last one. Wow. <laughs> what, a, what a ride. What a ride. And, and you're calling us now from where you'll end up. Yeah. So I had this job uh, about two weeks ago. I snuck over while the... Um, travel bubble was open between Australia and New Zealand to start a role as a collection technician at um, Auckland War Memorial Museum, which is basically just their museum. Um, it's 
War Memorial was their historic name. So, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, I got, I've started, this is my, into my third week of the job. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit about what I'll be doing for the next five years and, um, and yeah, why I crossed the ditch and, and left Mel- my beloved Melbourne home. <laughs> five years. You know um, that you're going to have a job for five years. I know. It's pretty rare in science. So, of course, had to snap up the opportunity. And the project is really cool. Um, so, basically, um, what I've, I've jumped on to an Indigenous-led research program for Rangitahua, which is the Maori name for the Kermadec Islands, which is a large, pristine, globally significant, but very poorly understood part of New Zealand's territory. So this group of islands is located midway between Tonga and the North Island of New Zealand. Um, They're subtropical islands and they're at the northernmost extension of New Zealand's economic exclusive zone. Um, They're extremely isolated. Um, So Norfolk Island is uh, about 1,300 kilometres west, Tonga's 650 kilometres north and New Zealand is uh, 900 kilometres south. So it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and this particular project involves the iwi researchers, which is iwi is the um, Indigenous people, and practitioners as well as the New Zealand scientists. And this five-year project has got an aim to sort of increase the knowledge of Rangitahua and prioritise um, iwi-led strategies for ecosystem well-being. So, yeah, it's a really cool project. Um, the the um, Maori group that we'll be working with is called Ngāti Kuri and they're the traditional carers and they also have a vision to restore sort of the life force of their ancestral lands um, and so it has a kind of holistic approach to understanding the connectedness of nature and people, land and sea, um, which is really cool. Um, and so why um, Rangitahua or the Kermadec Islands? Um, it includes internationally significant terrestrial um, and marine nature reserves and it's one of only four pristine marine ecosystems on Earth, which is pretty incredible. Um, so in pristine, in this instance, means fully isolated, fully protected seascapes containing unique biodiversity. Um, so there's three others in the world, um, Cocos and Mal- Malpelo, which is the west of South Central America in the Pacific, and Middleton Reef, which is in the Coral Sea in Australia. So... This ecosystems in this kind of state are exceedingly rare and it's particularly interesting because it's got a mixture of tropical and temperate biota, Um, so like seaweeds and corals existing together in warm surface waters um, with temperate kelp in sort of cooler, deeper water. And then on the islands themselves, they've got a mixture of Australia, New Zealand and Pacific sort of biota. So it's kind of interesting um, and yeah, it's got a, it, it just supports a variety of animals, mainly marine animals, but also lots of migratory birds and marine mammals. Um, and we've, we don't, we've, we've had a few surveys there before, but we haven't had anything that's sustained over a long period of time. So they tend to be opportunistic, um, in particular seasons because it's so remote, it's really hard to access. So we'll be going back and forwards from this, um, island group for the next five years and doing repeated surveys and studies uh, which is really exciting so it's going to be the largest sort of stock take that's ever been done of any marine habitat um, in New Zealand so far so that's really exciting and and my role will be mainly to sort of assist with creating and adding to a, a sort of knowledge portal of Rangitahua and to prepare all the specimens that we collect for technical support, so sort of collection management and field work and um, accessioning all the specimens and 
and data associated with the trips that we do um, and just to generally support sort of the, the expedition. So that's kind of what I'll be doing over the next five years and wow. hopefully we'll be able to get there as early as October this year. So on these trips, uh, A, how long does the trip take? B, how long do you stay there? C, what's what do you do for accommodation? Well, there's they're in uninhabited islands. So I think there might be like sort of a station there where they do sort of some monitoring and data, but no one lives there. So it'll be um, by boat we'll be getting there, um, usually probably about two weeks, oh. and we'd be staying on the boat. Oh, so wow. it'd be like more like a voyage. This is uh, like yeah. amazing. Yeah, so it's going to be really cool, and um, hopefully with this project I've, I do scuba diving recreationally. But um, I think they're keen to train me up as a sort of a commercial diver. So I'll be able to do, um, as well as the terrestrial surveys, as, um, do marine surveys as well. And we'll be having sort of collecting methods using um, sort of novel technologies. So they're going to be using um, remote, remotely uh, sort of systems like uh, solar drones, which are unmanned vehicles. They float above the surface that can map the ocean floor and collect data and also ocean gliders, um, which are autonomous, unmanned water vehicles that can collect data underwater. And there might be potential for um, an ROV, which is a remote-operated vehicle, um, basically like an unmanned submarine, which has little arms and you can collect um, sort of animals and things using that. Mm. Without, So you're able to access really deep water. And they've also got a dedicated team of re breathe uh rebreathers um so a dive team that recirculates the breathing gas exhaled by, exhaled by the diver um after replacing the oxygen used and removing the carbon dioxide so that means you can dive for deeper and for longer so hopefully we'll be able to explore deeper than than has been done previously wow and you'll go deeper than you've ever been before well i don't know if i'll i don't think i'll be on the rebreather dive team well I'll you've been trained You're, you said you're getting trained up <laughs> i'm getting Oh, but it's like levels of being trained up. So it's for for, for doing diving uh, for work, it's really hard um, to get the qualification. So at the moment I'm advanced open water, um, but I need to do two more courses in order to be able to, um, to, to be able to dive. And that's just would be to um, 30 metres, I think, still with the commercial, um, but I'm not sure. So, yeah, but the rebreathing is a whole other course on top of that. So, yeah, there's different levels of diving and obviously it's, it is, there are elements of danger to it. On, yeah, in my opinion, it's, it's more, you're more likely to get hit, uh, being in a car accident or something like that on the way to work than to sort of have anything bad happen. Mm. But obviously the deeper you go, the more risks there are. So, yeah, I don't think I'll be doing that. How different to... is the marine life that you're going to be looking at? And is there anything you're particularly kind of excited about finding or collecting or seeing for the first time? Yeah. Um, obviously I, I come with sort of a collections based um, experience, but coming to New Zealand, a lot of their um, flora and fauna are very different, but um, and, and this particular set of islands, it's got, it does have an, a high degree of endemism and, and species that aren't found anywhere else. So I'm going to be coming onto this um needing to learn about all these these animals that I that I haven't had previous exposure to or haven't seen before. Um, certainly for me it's always marine, so really excited to getting um, and seeing the corals, um, 
things like colourful mollusks, nudibranchs, gastropods, that kind of thing. They've also got some really, like, lots of whales. And I'd love to, you know, see some whales and, and that sort of thing on the, on the expedition. But, yeah, basically everything's going to be, like, uh, amazing and new for me. So it's it's really exciting opportunity for me to get some experience um, outside of Australia, see how other people do it. And, and like I mentioned at the start, um, in New Zealand – they just do things really well in terms of acknowledging First Peoples and really bringing um, – there's a really good established relationship between scientists and iwi people. Um, a really great example of this is that there was a new species um, described of a, a green seaweed and um, Ngati Kuri, which is the group I mentioned earlier, were actually put as an authority on the description of a new species. So that's the first time it's ever been done before. So it just it's just an acknowledgement of them and an inclusion of them in the process, the, the scientific process, and that's just really important. And I think, yeah, that's something that I'm really looking forward to learning more about that as well when I'm here. <clears throat> well, it sounds, you know, it's superficially sad, but it sounds like a dream job for you. Mm. It really is. I'm I'm really excited, and and everyone here has been so lovely. It's it's funny how museum people are just the same <laughs> the same personalities um here at this museum than there was at melbourne museum it's it's so they're definitely a great bunch of people and very warm and welcoming so it's been great so far and i'm yeah just every day is something new and exciting so i am sad oh. to um be away from home but also it's just a really exciting time and i just want to say thank you for having me on your program for last three years it's been an absolute pleasure and i know that you'll have someone to replace me that will know even more things and be able to teach you so much more than i could ever do (laughs) well sorry you didn't get to meet more of bobby yeah, uh, I know. It's been our first and last. We're just sh- passing. Ships in the night. Yeah. First and last, but enjoyed every minute of today. So thanks, Ricky Lee. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ricky Lee, you're always so prepared and informed and informative and chatty and so magnanimous about whatever stupid questions that we throw at you. <laughs> uh, it's really be, uh, it's a breeze to talk to you on air and we're very sorry to see you go, but extremely happy for your future. Thank you very much. It means a lot. And, yeah, thank you again. It's really exciting time. And I'll definitely, um, you know, post some things on Twitter and that sort of thing right. so you can follow along in the, on the journey. And <laughs> come back on when you make a huge discovery. <laughs> I will. I will. I will. I'll let you know. Don't worry. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Ricky Lee. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. It's 6.45. It's time to talk media. And uh, heard in the news effort to sort of increase the capacity for venues uh, and the Minister for Gaming and Liquor Regulation said that there's new guidelines, uh, there's a revision so that live music venues will also increase from 500 to 1,000. I mean, I'm not sure what that means for individual venues, but the the point that I want to uh, engage with is just what we want Melbourne to look like moving forward. If this is a bit of a year zero Mm. possibly then what do we want from the city and um it's been interesting observing the nicholas building so you would have walked past the nicholas building a million times it's on swanson street and flinders lane uh it was it's heritage listed it's beautiful it was built in 1926 um there's a i think a Post, if you've been on a walking tour of Melbourne, chances are you'll wander into the Nicholas Building and have a look around. It's it's that beautiful. 
uh, and the facade was restored in 1992. It, it's, it's described as having prominent barrel vaulted lead light ceiling, patent tiled floor and boutique retail spaces. It also features a distinct historic post box set into one wall, which you can check out if you're wandering past on the ground floor. Anyway, um, it's up for sale. Uh, and the reason why that matters is because it's absolute chock full of it's 10 floors and it's full of 110 like boutique offices for creatives. Okay. Uh, so it's this creative community and if it, sometimes it opens up during open house Melbourne, whenever that'll happen again. Uh, and so you can wander around and some of these offices, you know, they've got obviously totally unique views of Flinders Street Station, St Paul's Cathedral, Fed Square, the Domain Shrine of Remembrance and Southgate, and they're just milliners and jewellery makers and artists. And it's just, that to me is what you want the city to be. Especially if if law firms and all these people are fleeing or consolidating their office space and there's space available, the idea that it would be sold and creatives would be kicked out is like, oh, feels like a bit of an own goal. Uh, this might be a stupid question, but do you, do, who, who owns it at the moment? Well, five families. Uh, they are... Uh, what are their names? The, their names are Davis, Smorgan, Cohen, Price, Silverstein and Samuel families. Uh, Tur- they're all the four, four Turak family groups. Oh, wow. I, just, I, I, I don't know. I just thought it would be owned by the government or something. Well, it's, it's strange. The, it's, they're opening it to international yeah. bidders now. and right. So it's... it's you know, and the idea is that there's a major train station, which we all know, uh, I think it's called Anzac Station now. Oh, the new one, yeah. Yeah, that'll be opening opposite. And so the idea is, hey, come on in. Uh, you know, you've got this amazing train station. We'll sell it now. Uh, office, they're, they're, ex- they're suggesting that uh, the rate of transactions for large city buildings, which was slowed by the pandemic, is now starting to accelerate. Mm. So they think it's a good time to sell. They've owned it since 1973. But all the artists... There was a call actually to Big Z on Friday um, from a tenant inside the building oh. who's uh, upset about what could potentially happen. So there are 100 tenants. It's this rabbit warren of small offices and studios. So there's Heart and Soul Tattoo. There's the Historical Archaeology Unit. There's M78 Art Space. There's Royal Overseas League. Serena Lindemann Millinery. Um, it's really beautiful if you can walk around. No, I want to go inside of it now. Yeah, you really, it, it's... I, Desperately don't want this to go, especially now. It's yeah. just the last thing the city needs. It feels like there's so little of that left in the city as yeah. it is. And to, the fact that we've been able to retain that, it, it's almost surprising. I mean, my response to you telling me about I'm not, I've always known about the building, but I yeah. suppose I didn't really know what was in there. Uh, but my response to that is so emotional because it just sounds like something of another era. And I didn't even know that Melbourne had been able to retain anything yeah. like that. Yeah. And now to just know that and, and think that it might go is yeah. 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 deeply upsetting. And there are people in the building who are, I think, f- fatalistic, like, well, we had a good run. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah. I actually got um, my wedding ring and enge- engagement ring in a, at a jeweler. When you were describing that, I was like, actually, I think that's where my jeweler was. <laughs> oh, and, really? I, and I've just looked it up and, it, and it was. And I, and I do recall going in there just... 
it was stunning. And but I did see so many creatives. I'm like, and I honestly thought, I was like, how are they affording this space here? Um, but it was yeah, it, it was stunning, and I'd never seen anything like it. I was, um, I think, eventually when I went in uh, with my partner and and took her in to get a, another ring. Um, yeah, she said the same thing. She's like, how did you find this? I was like, I, I was looking up a jeweler, but yeah, the um, the building itself is just stunning. Yes, and it's you know they've got fragrance specialists in there as well, and yeah. it's 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 uh, you're right. It's it's a, such a special place to be. It's mm. so much fun to buy something from a local producer in yeah. there, and now that it's up for sale, it's it can all be. Uh, it's it can all go to dust. That yeah. and that that's that's effectively what will happen. And it's very good that it was able to exist and hopefully continues to exist. But the fact that it existed at all is. Beautiful. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but now there is the there's I think there's the Nicholas Building Association. Um, anyway, you can you can have a look. Nicholasbuilding.org.au is where you can go to find out more information about their struggle to keep this alive. Because to the idea also that you have artists in a central spot, mm. and it's a place for artists with business minds mm. that really want to. And how inspiring to turn up to work! In oh a my god, like yeah. That. Imagine, and I just feel like right now, to you, right? Like I think about the very fabric of this city, and walking around the streets of Melbourne right now, I don't recognise this city. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I said to my partner the other day. I know we've just had a kid that, kind of, and, and when you first have a kid, you're kind of a little bit separated from the world that you knew because you can't go out. You know, things change. You're really focused on your little bubble. But it's like I've finally been able to look up and look out into Melbourne and I don't recognise it. Mm. And Mm. the Melbourne that I left behind, I'm looking at it and going, I don't know where it is. And I I just hope that um, we can get it back to what it was. And I hope that we can get venues opened and and functioning and and our artists supported. Yes. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a very strange time in this city, yeah. and, I, and I don't I don't really know as the rest of Australia kind of goes into more lockdowns and we're all looking at each other going, oh, we're we're here and we're not locked down. It, it, uh, maybe it's a time for us to reflect on how we want to, I don't know, get this city open again. Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah, if we are going to proceed, it's like th- there's that line about you know the cavalry is it, the cavalry yeah. isn't coming. Like the cavalry is you. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I feel like it is down to us. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just having that realisation. Yeah, so go see shows, make art, and yeah. support people who are trying to make the city as good as Melbourne can be. And be and be vocal. Like, I think it's so good you're talking about this. And be vocal. Be vocal about your local venues um, and your local bars or, or, or theatre places. When you see them struggling and you see that they, they aren't able to hold shows, I just saw the Croxton cancel a bunch more shows again, and I thought... Mm. We've got to be more vocal about this because I think I take for granted the fact that these places have been able to keep existing for the last year. Yes, and that's not going to continue. No, that's right. Yeah, and and when a show does reschedule, I I know it's a kick in the guts when it gets cancelled, but go to the reschedule show. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. It's time for Food Interlude with our resident imbiber, Michael Harden. G'day, Michael. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, as you know, bloody tremendous. <laughs> as always. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's, what's tickled your tongue? 
Well, plenty. I'm trying to I'm trying to get out to eat as much as possible, given that, you know, things can happen and we can all be locked back into our houses eating lasagna again. <laughs> so um, so I was out the other night at a new place um, in the city called the Hardware Club, which is um, an Italian restaurant in the city in Hardware Lane. And uh, lots of fun if you uh, if you like Italian food and like good times, which is a pretty hard, uh, hard bar to clear really but um but they also the thing that i loved about it was that they had an amaro trolley um which comes around afterwards so and um amaro is something that i'm pretty keen on keen keen on a lot of alcohol but um i'm actually really keen on amaro and i like the sort of um there's sort of like a really geek level to amaro that i like a lot that sort of when you if you're ever in italy and forever allowed back it's sort of each um, area of Italy seems to have its own amaro, which and amaro is a is like a digestive, mostly like there's there there it means in Italian um, amaro or amari it means bitter, um, and so there is that class and you can sort of Campari and things like um, aperol are considered bitters, but they're not amaro in that they're like amaro is sort of digestives, whereas Campari and things like that are. Um, aperitivos, so the, they're the sort of things that you you drink to stimulate your palate before you eat. Whereas the digestives are the ones that you eat after you've had a meal, and they help you digest. Uh huh. So, um, and the thing about the and the amaros are all quite bitter, and they're they're sort of like a really lovely sort of culty alchemy about them because they're all made with um, lots of herbs and barks and flowers, and a lot of them sort of originated in monasteries or pharmacies and stuff like that. So they've got this really sort of medicinal thing that you can really fool yourself into thinking that it's doing you, you know, you're actually doing really good. It's sort of like you know, there's one even made with um, there's one uh, called rucoli which is made from um, two different types of rocket leaves. So it's sort of like you can tell yourself you're having salad um, while <laughs> having a drink, which is um, something that I quite like. <laughs> of course. How, how broad is uh, Amaro? Like, you know, could you spend your life... Oh yeah, and not get to the yeah. Bottom it's of sort it? of like you know, from town to town to town um, in Italy, you could you can get you know um, a different one in every town, and um, and the good thing is too in, in Australia, there's a lot of people that are starting to make them here. Like um, there's a guy, Michael Ryan, who's the owner and chef of a restaurant um, in the high country called Provenance in Beechworth. Um, he's that's well, that's what he did during lockdown was to he's got like a series of amaros that he's made and he's using. And the thing is that they're really kind of lovely in the way that they're local as well. But so, you know, the ones, there's there's um, there's an Amaro called Amaro Nonino, um, and it's sort of, um, sort of from mid-Italy and everything, and so it has a sort of like a, there's a warmth to it in terms of it's still bitter, but it's got it's got kind of like marmalade fruity characters. And then you've got another one, like it's called a Braulio, which is from northern Italy, and it's sort of much higher in the in the Alps and stuff like that. And so it's got a like a, a much thinner kind of sort of almost menthol sort of alpine, strong taste of alpine herbs. So they're sort of, they're really, they, they taste of the area, like the ones from the south, um, in Sicily, like one of the most famous ones that you've probably seen around that's called Averna, um, is uh, that's made sort of, it's got really citrusy kind of quality. So that's sort of like it's like, like a thicker sort of syrupy kind of cola quality to it, which is really lovely as well. 
Um, but I think the one, it's sort of like the thing that I like, the one that is my favourite, and I'm not sure whether I'm, it's, I, I like it because I like the flavour or I like it because it's um, bad boy reputation, <laughs> is, um, is Ferne Branca. And um, it is from Milan originally, and it's been around for forever. And it is the, the most kind of severely bitter of all of them. Like it's the, the best, the best um, description of, of its flavour profile that I read was it's like getting punched in the nose while sucking on a mentholated cocktail. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is that what right. you felt when you drank it? Yeah, yeah, it's great. And it's kind of like it, do, it really does kind of give you a bit of a whack, but it also gives you a real wake up, which, um, and it's very common in, on the ta- you know, in most cupboards in, in across Italy that to people to have that as a, as a thing. And it's a, it's a real sort of culty bartender kind of thing as well. It's sort of like a rite of passage that, you know, you kind of do shots of that during the night to keep you awake. So, you know, getting getting whacked in the face by by a, a Fernand Brunker is quite good. Wow. And it's it's kind of it's it's a really it's got its own sort of cult and it's popular in, in certain parts of the world. Like in Argentina, they drink more of the stuff than anyone else in uh, in the world. And um, they they drink 35% of all the Fernand Brunker produced is in there, and they drink it with Coca-Cola um, and, and ice, and it's like a pick-me-up. And um, I can I can um, brag and, and uh, so, uh, say that that's that's the the right that that's what happens is in that I had one of the best nights of my life um, in Buenos Aires drinking copious amounts of Fernet Branca and Coke <laughs> and ice, and uh, yeah, didn't sleep all night. It was Dead great. Set. Well, right. that, does that mean that it can be adapted beyond the digestive yes yeah that's the thing it's like that's really interesting about amaro that people are starting to discover that it's actually a really great thing um in cocktails as well because it adds it sort of takes some of the sweetness away from some cocktails so for example a negroni um there is um you can you can which is equal parts gin and campari and sweet vermouth and you can substitute the sweet vermouth in a Campari for an Amaro, and it just brings a sort of a darker and more bitter edge to that rather than a, than a sweetness. Mm. And, you know, because it's, you know, made with herbs, it's good for you. So, <laughs> Naturally. Is, yeah. it, is it, uh, apart from the uh, punch in the nose, is it, is it crowd-pleasing or is it we're verging on acquired taste here? There is a little bit of a quiet taste, but as I say, like some of the ones, like, you know, like my entry-level... Um, um, Amaro was a Verna, um, and it is a really mild. Um, it's got you know, there's a little bit of bitterness in the background, but it's actually sort of it's a really good one. And and the way like normally in Italy you would probably drink it straight, and a lot of people keep it in the fridge or the freezer. Um, but um, there's a you know it's there, it's also quite. You know, you could, you, you're not going to be laughed out of town if you ask for it over ice with a bit of a twist of orange okay. with it as well. So it's like, and they're actually, I don't know whether it's just psychosomatic, but I really like to drink um, an Amaro. It could also be that I just want to have an excuse to keep drinking. But, um, <laughs> but I also like to have an Amaro after, after a, particularly after a heavy meal. And I, I don't know whether it's psychosomatic, but it does it does seem like it does settle the stomach and help the digestion. Like some of the other health claims, I'm not sure. You could try it yourself. There's some. Um, it's claimed over the years that it's um, that it uh, reduces menstrual pain. Okay. Um, it can cure cholera. 
Um, it's good for a cough, and it also is apparently very good for warding off evil. Oh, there you go. Which is, you know, <laughs> in these days we could all use. Oh, precisely. <laughs> uh, and and do you, when, at the end of a meal, would you buy, does it come in like a small bottle that you can share at the table or people are buying individual glasses? Yeah, I- individual glasses of it. So, you know, when it, like say, for example, the Amaro trolley at the hardware club, um, you can, you know, they, they probably had, I would say probably... Um, probably 15 to 20 on the trolley, and they all have different flavour profiles. So it was really good because I was saying to them, you know, just, just you know, to, to have a conversation that I kind of like, I was looking for, you know, the Fernand Branca end of the spectrum, um, but maybe not as severe as that. And so they suggest, that was when they suggested the, the Braulio, um, which was the sort of Alpine one, which is it does have a more thin um, kind of drier, perhaps even menthol kind of character to it because of the alpine herbs. But, you know, there's a lot of people that like, you know, if you're more after a sort of on the sweeter end of the spectrum, then, you know, you can they'll, they'll send you down south to Sicily probably because yeah. they're the more sort of orange um, and, well, not orange necessarily, but citrus generally um, based Avernus. Plus, you know, they do have the other ones as well, other herbs in, in it as well. But there's, you know, there's one, there's a really good one in, that I had in Milan um, once right. that was made from rhubarb, and there's another one that's um, that's really good that I like as well. That's pro- fairly fairly widely available in Australia called Chinar C Y N A R, which is um, the base of it is artichokes. So Bloody it's um, there's a it's sort of I just I just really like that kind of alch- alchemy thing and that sort of like the geek level. Um, you know, fascination you can have with it because yeah. it's you know from different different areas. They they are remarkably different. Is it uh, gauche to order more than one? No, I don't think so. It's never gauche. To order more than one. <laughs> <laughs> Amaro, uh, and is, is that the first time? Is that the only place in Melbourne that you think would have a trolley of this type? I, I haven't seen another trolley. I've seen there's quite a few places around, you know, there's some really good Italian restaurants around that will have quite a good Amaro selection. Like, you know, sort of places like, you know, Grossi Florentino, which is, you know, old school Italian, to have a have a really good range yeah. of Averna there. So it's kind of like it's been, you know, the Italians have been, have had it, you know, as long as, pretty much as long as they've been here, as, you know, the, the Averna that has been shipped in for them and stuff. So I think it's just starting to make its way out into the wider world. And um, seeing, I sort of was out the other night and there were, I saw on a couple of um, cocktail lists that I had a look at that, that there was um, the Hanky Panky cocktail, which is a Ferne Branca cocktail with, um, I think it's, it's gin, two parts to gin, and then it's got a bit of sweet vermouth and then it's got um, Hanky, and then it's got um, Ferne Branca in it as well. So it's kind of, it's one of those ones that's sort of starting to get onto the consciousness and um, I say uh, get amongst it. Yeah. More God, you cost me a fortune, Michael Hart. <laughs> uh, well, we'll let, get, we'll let you get back to your liquid rhubarb and rocket leaf breakfast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm putting it on the, I'm putting it on the corn. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, mate. Talk soon. Okay, thanks. Triple R. William Westerman is an historian who was taught at Monash ANU as a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and an adjunct lecturer at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. He's now turned his historical eye to the year 1996 when the 113-year-old Fitzroy Football Club played its final game in the AFL. It's the subject of his new book, Merger, the Fitzroy Lions and the Tragedy of 1996. And to tell us about it, the third-generation Roy Boy joins us now. William, welcome to Breakfasters. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, Fitzroy's merger with the Brisbane Bears was the AFL's first and thus far only merger. Why does it remain a tragedy? Well, I think that sort of it sort of speaks for itself. The fact that for years and years and years, for generations, there was this club in the in the um, the VFL and then the AFL that um, that was like that was one of the pillars of Melbourne society and Melbourne culture, and that it was just always going to be there. And and and, and families and supporters uh, pinned so much of their um, their uh, family identity and their their personal routines and, and and what they did through the week on this one club. And then for it to uh, disappear and then for it to merge uh, and in the way that it did and tend to rip that away from, from so many people um, does remain a, um, a tragedy to this day. And even those who have adopted the, um, the Brisbane Lions or who have um, followed other clubs, uh, there's, there's still that sense of loss of like that the club that they grew up barracking for and, and supporting and that the club that they loved is now no longer, um, no longer exists in, in the form that they knew it in. Looking back 25 years later, what went down when you say the way that it did? What went down in 1996 that the book illuminates? Yeah, well, it's a very complex story with a lot of intrigue and um, and uh, uh, double dealing and um, just a, a lot of drama about it. And uh, I couldn't do it justice to, to explain it all <laughs> um, in, 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 in the short time I have with you this morning. Uh, but really, what what the, the basic situation was is that Fitzroy uh, was one of the, the clubs, one of the, the league's financially poorest clubs. Uh, it was poor and getting poorer compared to its competitors. And by 1996, that had really become an an, uh, an unsustainable position. So, in order to salvage something of the club, uh, it looked around for a merger with uh, with another club in, in the league. Um, in order to, to say, well, we can't survive on our own, but at least if we merge, we can sort of be be a part of another club, and then that can sort of carry our heritage forward. And so it looked to um, look to merge with North Melbourne. Uh, that was going to go ahead. Uh, that was all all set to happen. And then, um, just actually this week, uh, twenty five years ago, uh, the the club's creditors appointed an administrator, and the administrator took over the club and really moved it in a different direction. Um, and through a week of of, of, of high drama and um, and tragedy and, and, and a bit of farce thrown in. Uh, Fitzroy ended up merging with the AFL's consent with um, with the, uh, the then Brisbane Bears, um, and then the rest of the year sort of played out with the uh, the, the, the ramifications of the, of, um, of that. So that's that's really the year in a nutshell. But as I said, there's a, there's a lot more to, to the story than that. Was it the product of economic rationalism of the '90s? And can you imagine it occurring now? Uh, well, no, I can't imagine it occurring now, um, and there's, there's a very good reason for that. Um, at, at the time, the, the, the league was it wasn't as, as, as rich as, as we know it is today, um, and it was trying to make sure that all of its clubs could survive on their own. Um, they could they could pay their own way, and they could be the um, um, they, they wouldn't have to rely on the AFL to be a to be a banker to the clubs. That, that was something the league really wanted to avoid, um, and and so that that's why they pushed this. Uh, economic rationalism line very hard. It's like you, you either sort of pay your own way or you're out. Um, but as money started to come in after sort of 96, with, with increasingly broadcast, the, the, the larger broadcast deals, I think the league discovered that actually it was a good thing to be a banker to its clubs because that way it could be um, it could exert a lot more control over them. Mm. If, they, um, if the clubs were financially beholden to the league, then they could be a bit more malleable or, um, or uh, could be... be influenced a bit um, a bit more easily um and 
so so that, that that's one reason why I don't think you'd you'd, you'd see a resurgence of, of economic rationalism because it's it's it, I think the league prefers it as it is these days, and um, that's that's a bit of a cynical view. But there's also the the emotional point of uh, point of view that the ramifications of the Fitzroy merger and, and what happened in '96 was so painful um, to to some to to the people who were involved and left such a, a stain on the, on the legacy of um, the AFL at the time. I mean, you can hardly hardly invoke the name of. Um, uh, Ross Oakley, the uh, the AFL CEO at the time, without someone uh, having some some strong opinions about him and, and what he was trying to do with the league. So I think the the league also wishes to avoid that 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 sort of situation where it's actively trying to get rid of um, uh, some of its clubs. So we've we've got that to be thankful for at least. Although it still doesn't mean that, that everything's perfect. I mean, you only have to be a current North Melbourne fan to 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 appreciate. Um, uh, the the steps that that the league is is potentially trying to take to to move them elsewhere and and, and things like that. So it's an on it's it's an ongoing um, struggle for fans. But I think I I, I would think and I, and I hope that the um the the darkest days of the um, the nineties are behind us. Do you think it's in any way I don't know reflected on or affected the way that the AFL communicates and responds with fans? Like this year, it's, last year's been so extraordinary watching games without fans at them. Um, it's been it's been the most kind of separate fans have been removed from their clubs in a very long time, and it's made me think about like what is footy if it's not if it's not the fans, you know? Like what am I watching these empty stadiums and these strange experiences and clubs being in hubs and stuff? Do you think the AFL's learnt much from from that experience and and their relationship with fans? Yeah, I think I think last year really really brought it home in a way that it really hasn't done before as to what a crucial part of the um the the, uh, the the fabric of the game the supporters are who, who who turn up every day and then then they're not just these um these financial units that that that, that um give give their money to clubs but they're actually uh, uh, the, the the heart and soul of the experience and i think that came through a little bit in 96 with with um with Fitzroy uh the the, the reaction to to supporters and the, the reaction from supporters um to to losing their club but I think it really needed that the those those really de- um, uh, desolate scenes of, of the, em- the empty MCG with a game going on it to really bring bring that message home. Because you take you take Fitzroy out of the equation, yes, it was just painful for everyone involved. But Fitzroy was a small part of it. Whereas if you take every club away, and suddenly the impact is much much larger. Yeah, the uh, you're in a story, and the book's heavily footnoted. How it, how did your research abilities? Uh, bring to life this year, 1996, in the history of the club. Yeah, well, it was important to to um, to do all that research and, and to bring a sort of scholarly perspective to it because it's such an, uh, an in parts heavily contested story that I wanted to make sure that I was being as rigorous as possible with the claims claims that I was making. Um, I got good access to, to uh, AFL records and I read every newspaper article from the time on the. Um, on, on, on Fitzroy, uh, one of the one of the difficult parts, but also one of the enjoyable parts, was talking to people who who were involved. Um, it's great to hear those those those, those first hand accounts and stories, and and to get a, get get different perspectives um, from people. But the challenge there is always that one uh, you're you're dealing with with um, with memory, which is fallible. You're dealing with uh, people's personal perspectives; they might have uh, agendas or, 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 or reputations that that they're, that they're trying to protect. And also that, that over over time people forget things and um, and, and, and memory comes becomes a little faded. So that was a a bit of a challenge. But I, I felt in bringing the book out now 
uh, one of the important things was to capture all those stories because the longer it, it, it gets and the further away we get from 1996, those, those things are going to start to yeah. disappear. So it was important, I think, from my point of view, to capture the story now, to capture people's memories uh, while they were still you know, reasonably uh, uh, um, uh, fresh. Yeah, you're right. The uh, one supporter who had followed the lines for half a century had been howling all night. It, it was as if someone had cut out her heart with a knife, she said, and she vowed never to go to another AFL uh, game or give the league a cent. Where are these people now as a rule? Did they completely fall out of love with the game? Um, you know, t- tell us about the legacy of Fitzroy. Yeah, well, certainly some did. I mean, there were, there were plenty of people in '96 vowing that they would never go go to a game again, and a lot of them um, followed through on that threat. And just the experience was so uh, so traumatic for them that they couldn't actually go and go and go and engage. Um, others others have sort of come come to terms with it. It, it took like a, a lot of time from '96 onwards to actually uh, uh, accept what had happened, and, and, and some people had went on to follow uh, um, other clubs because they wanted to. to to uh, keep supporting a Melbourne club, um, a, um, a fair few people supported Brisbane, um, and that's that's fine. I, I myself am a Brisbane Lions supporter. Um, it's, it's one of those things where people have. It's not. It doesn't necessarily replace Fitzroy, but it's 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 something to follow. And and, and one of the, one of the issues that people had in the aftermath of '96 was if, if I'm not going to follow Fitzroy, how do I follow a club like? Collingwood or Carlton or whoever the, the, these these clubs that we've been sort of barracking against our our, um, our whole uh, whole life. So every every individual fan came to their own own accommodation about what they were going to do. Well, uh, these reflections are way more fleshed out in Merger, The Fitzroy Lines and the Tragedy of 1996. It's a book out now via Melbourne Books, and it's uh, written by historian William Westman. William, thanks so much for chatting with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, William. Take Thanks, William. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. 